There was a uh, beautiful cathedral in Europe some years ago where one of those kind of rare storms came across and uh, blew away a magnificent stained glass window that has adorned the top of the altar there. And as the storm blew the stained glass to pieces, literally to a window, the custodian looked at the pieces and he was devastated and people came from all over the world to see that beautiful stained glass window. So he kind of took it upon himself to gather the pieces and put them, all the fragments together in a big box and stored it in the basement of the cathedral. A well-known artist um, a few years later came by and he petitioned the trustees of the cathedral when he heard that all the pieces are together in a box down in the basement. And he said, can I have that box, please? And the trustees decided that he can have them. And two years later, he invited the church trustees into his own studio where he had unveiled a major work that he has done. And to their absolute astonishment, he restored the window, and it looked more beautiful than the first one. More beautiful than the original one. And I know that... Um, If you had any experiences like mine in life, that you probably have experiences that probably are shattering, just like that stained glass window, that at some point you've experienced probably the blessings of God, but then you experience also the storms of life, the blasting of life. And I often say that whenever the blessings come, there's always the blasting. (laughs) And the two somehow seem to follow each other on the heels of each other. And if you have not experienced the restoration of God, if you're going through a a tough time right now, a shattering time right now, a blasting time, and yet you have not seen the work of the restoration of our wonderful master artist, the Lord Jesus Christ, take heart, he will. You absolutely will. You have God's word on it. Because God specializes in restoring fragments in life into magnificent, beautiful and more meaningful life. God specializes in remaking beauty out of ashes. You have God's Word on it. In life, I think the blasting and the blessing often either go hand in hand or follow on the, on the heels of each other. In life, the high and the low often can be called close companions. In life, in general, there is the triumph and then there is the defeat. There's a trial, and there's a victory, and they often work in succession. In fact, this is precisely where we're going to see Elijah in his life and in his walk. As we're studying this life of this great man, in reality, what we're really studying is the way God works in the life of one man. How God works is the focus of seeing him working in the life of one man. First, we saw God hiding Elijah in the brook of Cherith. And often God hides us in order to humble us. But he also hides us for another reason. He hides us so he can provide for us. He hides us so that he can protect us from the enemies. I know you and I know that often we resent God's hiding places. And yet, it's only in those hiding places that God works his purposes out in us. Without those hiding places, we're too busy 
Without those hiding places, we are running around. Without those two hiding places, we are scattered in a million different directions. And so God has to bring us to those hiding places in order to say, okay, now I got your attention. I remember when we started the Church of the Apostles. We began on Mother's Day on our first service, as I shared with you, 28 adults in the Waverly Hotel uh, in 1987. And um, I was running haggard. The church began to grow. We started with 28. The next Sunday we had 60. We doubled just in one week. Uh, and then we moved out of the hotel into a private school, and we're, we're there for six years. And the church began to grow, and I'm the only pastor there. And um, people were calling, and I was really working hard for God. I wasn't doing anything bad. <laughs> I was out breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and there were appointments all in between. And I was running around for two years until one day I had double pneumonia, and I was right on my back. I remember I was so sick I couldn't even move, and I have been through a lot. I had typhoid. I had... Uh, Uh, yellow fever. I mean, I've been through a lot, but this time, somehow, it hit me so hard, and I was on my back for two weeks, and I had nowhere to look but up. And this one, the Lord says, good, now I got your attention. (laughs) And the Lord basically ministered to me at that time in a way that He could not have ministered to me, running around, serving Him. I wasn't doing anything bad. I was serving the Lord. And here's what the Lord said to me back in those In 1989, two years after we started the church, and the Lord said, you cannot minister to anybody without my power, without my strength. And furthermore, you cannot really minister effectively to anyone until you first have ministered to me. And I said, Lord, well, how do I minister to you? How can I minister to the Lord? And the Lord took me through a training program (laughs) of how to minister to Him in the early hours of every morning. I can't help it. It's not something that I, I, I don't put the alarm on. I don't. Um, in fact, uh, if I am just not sure and I set the alarm, you know, for 6 o'clock, I get up at 4 or 10 it off. <laughs> I just get up early. From that time on, for all these years, He just wakes me up early in the morning to minister to Him in praise and adoration. And I wrote the book, Empowered by Praise, that came out of that experience of learning how to minister to the Lord before I can minister to people. You can say, well, you know, it was not terrible that you, you know, laid on your back with uh, vast amounts of antibiotics and all the kind of stuff. Yes, but it was a great time because God ministered to me in that hiding place. Then we saw in the last message how God led Elijah to the land of Baal worshiping Zarephath, a stinking city, a stinking village, town. Zarephath, the Phoenician city, is where God gave Elijah an opportunity to exercise risking faith, not just for himself, but also for his host. Zarephath, a pagan city, which means melt or smelt because they were melting metal all the time. God was purifying his servant melting away all the dross of the flesh so that he can use him in a mighty way as he trusts in God alone. And here tonight, what I want to share with you, Elijah, of course, finds himself still in Zarephath. He hasn't left yet. And there God is about 
to move Elijah from passive testing to active testing. And it's a big one. There you're going to see him. How the blessings of the increased flour and the increased oil begins to give way to blasting of life. Calamity and death. Turn with me if you don't have already in First Kings 17. And uh, follow with me as we go through the word of God. In fact, verses 17, 17, 17 of 1 Kings. Elijah, the Phoenician woman, and her son, all three of them were experiencing daily miracle. Isn't that great? You know, they're just kind of holding hands around the campfire and singing Kumbaya. That's great. Oh, I mean, when we all love that life to be like that every day, just great blessing every morning. New blessings coming in, new flour, new oil, and God keeps blessing them. As life was going and progressing, experiencing this daily blessing, this daily miracle, this daily provision, it goes immediately after that and says, Now, the son of the Phoenician widow, this widow who risked in faith at the challenge of the man of God, her son becomes ill and dies. And the Hebrew word here is for that his soul basically left him, which leaves us in no doubt that the boy was dead. It wasn't fainting, it, as some people would have us believe. It wasn't just a, a coma, it was death. His soul left him, the boy died. Look at verse 18. <laughs> the woman said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? <laughs> Did you come here to remind me of sin and kill my son? Isn't that interesting? First, I want you to notice in verse 17 comes in right after 16, of course. And 16, here's a picture of Zarephath, the little village, which has been the place of uninterrupted and unhampered blessing. The place of uninterrupted miracle, supernatural intervention of God. New oil and new flour every day. And then immediately he goes in there. After they wake up in the morning, here's God's provision. Before they go to bed, they experience God's provision. And before they could even begin to rejoice in the miracle, verse 16, you read the, about the blessing, and immediately go to verse 17, and you read of this tragic, life's tragic blasting. Blessing, blasting, all at the same time. <laughs> and the woman cries out in verse 18, and you know what? Her cry is very natural. I want to tell you something. One of the things that I see among Christians, and I have experienced it with a lot of people, and I don't want you to miss it because it's really important, is that they allow others and then allow themselves to put themselves under a guilt trip. You must never ask God why, because that's sacrilege. Now, I don't understand where they get that from. And I've heard it. I've heard it said to me one time. Somebody was rebuking me when I was asking why. You know, people say, never, never, never ask God why. You never question God. I said, y y you know, why is really the natural, the most natural question that we can ask. The greatest heroes 
in biblical faith. They all asked why. In the book of Judges, chapter 6, when the Midianites were about to decimate the people of God, Gideon asked, why did God allow this to happen? Job, who lost his family and lost his fortune and lost everything and sat on the heap of rubble, he asked, why wasn't I born dead? Recall the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself hanging on that cross saying, Eli, Eli, Lema. The word Lema means why? Lema Shabakhtani. Why have you forsaken me? If God's own son asked why, then don't let people or don't allow yourself to put yourself under a guilt trip for asking why. We all face God's blessings in life. But we also face life's blasting. And there are times in life when the highest of our dreams get shattered. There are times in life when the best of hopes get dashed. There are times in life when we find ourselves hanging upside down. And in those times, the natural question is why? Just like the widow in Zarephath. I'm convinced that... uh, This question must be pounding on the doors of heaven all the time from broken-hearted people everywhere. It probably rises to heaven from hospital wards. It rises to heaven from lonely bedrooms. It rises to heaven from grave sites. It rises from each personal Gethsemane where troubled souls plead in private agony. Why? 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 Now, I'm not talking about the pain that comes as a result of one's disobedience or the pain that comes as a result of sin. I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about the grief that that is a natural consequence of rebellion. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about what happens when you are faithful to the Lord, obedient to the Lord, and then life started blasting away. In the middle of doing the will of God, you find yourself blasted. For no reason. You know, many of us, I think, understand the paradox of this woman. And if you don't, I sure do. (laughs) While she knew God's blessings in one area, she's experienced life's blasting in another. I remember in my own life, in March 4th, 1964, I gave my life to the Lord. It was the greatest news my mother has ever heard. Because, you see, when I was a teenager and I went and and I was in my rebellion years... (laughs) Um, my mother was, got a little confused. She said, what in the world have I done? I risked my life to have this boy and look at his life of rebellion. And I remember one time, she absolutely was so frustrated at her wit's end, she laid hand on me and she said, Lord, if he is not going to turn out the way I thought he was going to turn out, take him home now. I mean, <laughs> that's scary, man. <laughs> that put the fear of God in my life. <laughs> She's a great prayer warrior, too. And I thought, I said, God, am I listen to her? And um, here I am on March 4th, 64. I committed my life to Christ, which brought enormous joy to her heart. And yet in July of that year, she went to be with the Lord. God's blessings and life's blasting. Back in 1990, we were experiencing great blessings of God and growth in the church. Things were really happening, and, and God is moving in our midst, and, and we could experience. The whole city came to see it and realize it. Within two weeks, I had our eldest daughter in intensive care unit uh, fighting for her life, 
And within two weeks, my wife went into another hospital <laughs> right next door almost with a very serious operation. God's blessings and life's blasting, they come to all of us. And they can come together or they can come in succession. And I hate to tell you how I prayed during those days, during those tough times. You don't want to know how I talked to the Lord. It's not very edifying. And I pounded on the doors of heaven. God's blessings and life's blessing. You know, in verse 12, when there was a famine in the land, the woman was ready to accept the fact that she's only got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. She's going to bake a cake. She's going to eat it, and she's going to die. They both were going to die. And she surrendered to that fact. She resigned herself to that fact. But here in verse 18, she attacks Elijah, the guy who saved her life and saved her son's life. She attacks him with anger and accusations. Our emotions are incredible, aren't they? They really are. They're unpredictable. We cannot trust them. They're like a barometric barometric pressure. The woman's anger was actually directed at God because she associated God with Baal. And therefore, God is invisible, but the man of God is very visible. And the man of God really got the brunt of it. I can tell you something that I've learned through the years, even before I become a pastor, is that when people are angry with God, they're going to take it out on a godly person. Is going to take it out on the pastor. Is going to take it out on Christian leaders. They're going to take it out on somebody. Because God is not visible. But the godly are visible. When family member or a friend gets mad at God. Is going to take it on the godliest person in the household. It's just natural. Because like this woman. This type of anger is often accompanied with guilt. There's guilt Below that anger, below the surface of that anger. I want you to see this in verse 18. It's very clear. She said, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? For some reason, I have discovered death brings guilt to the surface. I've seen people grieve in funerals, not only for loved ones, but also for their own sense of guilt, for their own sense of failure in the face of the inevitability of death. But I want to help you understand the way God works, as we see it in the life of this man. This Baal-worshipping woman did not know Yahweh as she should. She tied Yahweh with the same brush as Baal. And that's mistake number one. Because Baal was a vindictive God. Because Baal was a God of the tit for tat. Because Baal was the God of a blow for blow. She thought that her dead son died because of her sin. What is she thinking? What is she thinking? She's suffering from enormous guilt. There's a sin in her life that she did not deal with. But you know, that actually was not just limited to the pagans. A lot of the Jewish people believed that all diseases associated with sin. Do you remember in John chapter 9? This is really humorous if you, if you focus on it a little bit. Jesus heals the man born blind and Jesus heals him. And the disciples immediately jumped to conclusion in, in, the, in the typical thinking of that day with 
teaching of some of the rabbis, and they said, now, did he sin or his parents sin? The boy was born blind. (laughs) He didn't get a chance to sin, did he? But think of the logic in their mind that all, all diseases associated with sin. So they were quick to conclude and pass rash judgment. They were quick to make a connection between sin and calamity. But instead of watching and seeing how can God use these things for His glory, they began to look for blame. Now I want you, I really want to get away quickly from this woman's anger and guilt, and, and I love to see the God of man's reaction to that calamity. It's wonderful. It is a classic. And if anybody wants to write a case of how to react to calamity and disaster, and how to react to unfair criticism, how you react to unfair attack, personal attack, look at Elijah's reaction. What did this man of God do? He performed the very first resurrection recorded in the Word of God. And this is, that's not, don't dismiss this. This is very significant. It's the first resurrection ever recorded in the Scripture. And there are several principles here that I want to share with you. Write them down. First, verse 19, Elijah did not defend himself. He did not say, lady, you were about to die anyway. Your son was dead anyway. And I helped you become alive. Look at the miracles that I have performed in your midst. And don't you understand who I am? And No, no, no. He didn't even defend himself. He remained silent. He did not try to give her a theological lesson. You tried to confusing Baal with Jehovah God. Let me tell you about God. No, no, no. This was not a time for a theological lesson. For an in-depth Bible study. (laughs) He did not condemn her for her false view of God. No, this is not the time for that. He said four words. (laughs) Give me your son. And he had just been attacked. He had just been assaulted. He had just been reviled. And yet, he knew that this was pain talking. He knew that this was hurt talking. He knew that this was guilt talking. You know, there are many times when we are in a pit of pain and we lash out at those who are innocent, often those who really are the dear, dearest and nearest to us. But then there's a second principle I want to share with you here. Very important. Elijah saved his questioning of God until he was alone with God. He did not question God in front of this pagan woman. She would not understand what he's saying. She would not have understood what he's doing. This is a a man who walked with God. This was a man who has had intimacy with God. This is a man of prayer. As James again remind you said, he was a man like unto us, but he prayed and God heard his prayer. Look at verse 20. When Elijah carried the boy upstairs, he said to God, Oh, Lord God, why? <laughs> he didn't want to do that in front of her. Here's that why again. But I don't want you to miss this point. Elijah did not ask that question downstairs. He asked it upstairs. Not in front of the unbelieving woman. Not in front of the struggling woman. But when he was alone with God. In fact, I want to tell you, verse 20, I want to tell you, Elijah's prayer over there, that's not a good prayer. (laughs) 
It's not a very good prayer at all. It's a bad prayer. It is not an example or all model for prayer. There are a lot of good prayers in the Bible. This is not one of them. In fact, I can tell you categorically, it was a bad prayer. It was Elijah, the man of God, who prayed it. But nonetheless, it was a bad prayer. Elijah was just as wrong as the widow was. But he was perplexed. He was anguished. He was agitated. He obviously had fondness for the boy. But his prayer was wrong. Because in accusing God of bringing tragedy and causing the son of the widow to die. That was the wrong accusation of God. And here is what I want you to hear me, and hear me well. God is an awesomely good God. And He turns all bad situations for those who love Him and bring good out of them. I'm not saying they are good, they are bad, but He can take bad situations, bring good out of them. And because God is awesomely merciful God, because God is awesomely good God, He allows us to say some sorry prayers sometimes. And I'm going to tell you, I've done my fair share of some sorry praying through the years. When we are confused and agitated. When we get frustrated, we pray the wrong way. But you know what? Here's what you need to remember. When you pray the wrong way, when I pray the wrong way, simply because of the circumstances, God doesn't get dizzy and fall off his throne. (laughs) Because of our bad prayer. And imagine God in heaven looking down saying, I'm not going to take this anymore. This is bad prayer. No, I'm not going to listen to you. (laughs) No, God is a wonderfully merciful God. The third principle is this. Your intense and persistent praying according to the will of God makes a difference. It really makes a difference. I don't mean that you are going to be able to pull off a resurrection. I don't mean that. But when you have nothing left except God, when you have stripped yourself of everything except God, when you have taken hold of the horns on the altar in persistent prayer, your prayers will make a difference. I want to move quickly to the fourth principle. And that was Elijah went to the place where he had learned to go every day. Elijah went to the prophet's chamber where he communed with God on a daily basis. This was not a strange place for him. Elijah went upstairs, the place that he had already been sanctified by hours of prayer, by hours of kneeling on the promises of God, by hours of communing with God, by hours of intimacy with God. So when calamity came, he took the calamity to the prayer closet where he had learned to meet with God. I want to ask you this. And I hope that you will answer that question to yourself. Do you have a place where you meet God on a daily basis? If you don't, I hope that you'll make a decision tonight that you'll have a place. Not that there's anything magical about the place. It doesn't matter what kind of a place you be in. Must have a place where you meet God on a daily basis. Because when you meet God 
on a daily basis, when things are going well, when, li- when God is blessing you, then you'll be able to go there when life is blasting you, and you will gain strength. Do you have a place? If you don't, have one. Look at verse 21. And I want you to notice the intensity by which this man of God prayed. He stretched himself upon the boy three times. Why did he do that? Do you want to know why? I haven't got the foggiest idea. (laughs) Some of the early fathers said that's early reference to the Trinity and all kinds of fancy ideas. The Bible doesn't tell us why he did this. This is the very first resurrection ever recorded in the Word of God. And Elijah could not go to Emmanuel and look at page 67, section B, subsection D, and said, raising a Gentile boy from the dead. Well, it just doesn't happen that way. (laughs) I just thought of the man, Elijah, brokenhearted probably, frustrated, weeping, sobbing. He couldn't do anything else. And he said, I do what it takes. As if he was trying to pass his own vitality into the boy. This is a picture of the kind of prayer that does something with God. And in this humble home of a Phoenician, Gentile, Baal, worshipping widow, God did the first recorded resurrection in the Word of God. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Galilee, not in all the cities that you may think the first resurrection ought to have taken place. No, it happened in Zarephath of all places. Don't ever underestimate God working in different places, in different circumstances that you never ever thought possible. That's the way God works. I just met with the head of the Bible Society in the Middle East. And he said something to me that absolutely startled me. He said, you know, when I get depressed, I go to the Gaza Strip. I said, please say that again. He said, when I get depressed, I go to the Gaza Strip. I said, now I heard you the first time, and I heard you a second time. Can I hear it a third time? He said, yes. When I get depressed, I go to the Gaza Strip. I said, all we see on television from Gaza Strip is bombing and killing and murder and and suicide bombers and and retaliation and and hitting Israeli settlers and, and all of that stuff. He said, there are more people coming to Christ in the Gaza Strip than we can disciple them. You see, don't ever underestimate where God works and how God works. And that was an incredible, uplifting experience. Here he is in Zarephath, the man of God. The first resurrection recorded in the Bible and in the Word of God. But I want you to look at God's response. First, you see how restrained the Word of God is. This is important, folks, because we see some showmen's on television these days. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life was restored. And that's it. (laughs) That's it. I know the movie makers were reenacting this thing. I mean, they would have so many extras on the set. And they would play this music, and dramatic music, and singing, and trumpets blowing. 
But that's not the way God works. That's not the way God's Word presents this to us. There are no showmanship here. No showmanship in the miracle. There were no television cameras. There were no fundraisers and fundraising gimmicks. The boy did not write a best-selling book on what is on the other side of death. No. These are all man's way. These are all man's way. God's way is very simple. You don't have to try to convince anyone when it is the Word of God. I often think when people are so fixated on miracles, supernatural, 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 we experience them every day. (laughs) They're part of life for those of us who love the Lord. But when people are always talking about the spectacular, and I think of the man who died and went to hell, and Jesus tells the story, Lazarus and the rich man. And after Lazarus goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell, you notice what happened? He became an evangelist in the first five seconds. And he said, I want my brothers to hear the gospel so they don't come here, so they don't end up here. Get Lazarus to rise up from the dead, because if he rises out of the grave, they're going to believe him. And it's interesting what Abraham's response was, according to the words of Jesus to us. He said, you know, if they don't believe the Word of God, if they're not going to believe the Bible, even if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe it. Now, they might be mesmerized by the supernatural. They'll be mesmerized by the spectacular. But it's not going to change their heart. Only the Word of God is going to do that. Only the Word of God is going to do that. And so here, the Word of God simply says, the boy was raised from the dead, and Elijah gave it to his mother. And that was it. That was it. This is the secret of the authority of the Word of God. This is how you know that it is the Word of God. It is unexplainable. It simply says God did it. What is the believer's response? God did it. (laughs) That's it. God did it. What is the unbeliever's response? The woman, the widow, (laughs) she said, God did it. There was no doubt in anybody's mind, God did it. And here's what she said. Now I know you are God's man. Why? She saw the reality, the intensity, and the integrity of faith under fire. And that's what the world is desperate to see in us. She testified to the Word of God when she said, I know that the Word of the Lord from your mouth. This woman was honored in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, when she is listed among those names in what we call the Faith Hall of Fame. You remember, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Isaac, by faith All the big boys and girls, (laughs) all the big names, and this widow, here she is because of her testimony. She is listed. Hebrews 11.35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. And here she gets that honor to be listed in that great list. This widow, whose name we don't know, made the roll call of faith of all times. She came to know the living God. After this experience. And it is my prayer. That if anybody here. Who's never experienced the power of God. Working and bringing salvation. And eternal life. That this would be the time. And if you have been walking. In the lukewarm life. 
style as a Christian. It is my prayer that the study of the life of this man is going to inspire you to walk by faith. Father, you are a gracious God, and you are wonderful, patient, long-suffering, persevering God. And we thank you that you are patient with us, and you use all kinds of methods to speak to us and prod us so that we may turn to you. You owe us to yourself, and we thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray, Father God, that those words that we have heard with our outward ears will penetrate deep into our hearts, deep into our psyche, that, Father, our lives be changed and be changed for good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.